Good morning. Thanks for joining us today. I want to say thanks to all of those who are joining us online. I'm going to give a shout out to my mom and dad, who I believe are watching from Louisville, Kentucky. So hi, mom and dad. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. As I was watching that video, I was thinking, you know, I'm so thankful that our church family invests in kiddos. And uh, whether you know it or not, uh, my wife and I have several kids. We have five children of our own. And I'm excited to share that we are pregnant with baby number six coming later this summer. Yes. You know, you know, when you tell people you're having your sixth kid, people are like, should I clap? Is that appropriate? And, uh, you know, I hesitated to share that news with some of you because for some of you, um, you're not going to hear another word I say the rest of the morning because you're going to be thinking to yourself, six kids. I could never have six kids. Like, how old is he? He doesn't seem like he's old enough to have six kids. Okay, how big is their house? I don't know, it can't be that big. He's, he's living on a pastor's salary. What kind of vehicle do they drive? Do six kids fit in a minivan? I bet they're going to have to get one of those big vans. Oh, I would not want to be one of those big van families. That's my Jim Gaffigan bit for the morning. Thank you very much. So, yes, we are getting a big van, and we are excited to be having six kids. I have all five, the families up here in front, and so I love all of you all. We're so thankful for you, and so thankful for my family. Well, today it marks the start of what is often called Holy Week or Passion Week, and this is when Christians around the world celebrate and remember the final days of Jesus' life and ministry. And the week begins today, what is often referred to as Palm Sunday, and ends next week with Easter Sunday. Today, we're going to look at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 21. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21. And as you turn there, and before we go any further, let me pray for us. Will you pray with me? Father, I am so thankful for your love and your grace, and I'm so thankful for the cross. Father, we are so thankful for Jesus. And I'm thankful that I got a chance to study this passage this week, and I'm thankful for the ways that you encouraged me and opened my eyes to some things. And so, God, I just trust you're going to want to share that same thing with our church family and for those who are watching online. I trust that you want to speak to us. And so, Father, I just ask, would you pour out your spirit on us? Would you open our eyes? Would you open our ears? Would you help us to see how glorious you are, Jesus? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so it's the last week of Jesus' life and ministry. And Jesus and his disciples, like thousands of other Jews, have made their way to Jerusalem, made that journey for the Passover festival. You may remember that Passover was uh, the time when the Jewish people celebrated and remembered how God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. It was, in essence, a freedom or an independence festival. And they would not only celebrate what God did in the past, but they would also plead with God to do something in the present. It was a time of prayer where they were asking God to rescue them again. This time, not from the Egyptians, but from the Romans. And they believed that that rescue would come through a long-awaited Messiah, a coming king. Teacher Brad Gray says it this way, during the Passover, the Jews were pleading with God to reveal the coming king to reveal the coming Messiah who they believed would fight a decisive battle against Rome. Each year they would ask, is this the year God is going to reveal the coming king? Historians say it was common that around 250,000 people would come into Jerusalem for Passover. 
We have several thousand people who have made their way to downtown Indy for the NCAA tournament. Basketball fans have crowded in to our downtown city. Well, these thousands of people are crowding into Jerusalem. And among the crowds, there's this rumor circulating. There's some buzz and excitement because there's a prophet from Nazareth that is rumored to be that long-awaited Messiah and King. News about Jesus has been spreading for some time. He's now a couple of years into his public ministry. Many have heard his teachings. Some have experienced his miracles. Just days before this, he performed his most spectacular miracle yet when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And so the crowds are growing with interest and excitement. But at the same time, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they're growing more furious because Jesus is a threat to their leadership and to their authority. They're ready. They're more than ready than ever, more ready than ever to kill Jesus. And so it's in this tension that our story, we see our story today where Jesus and his disciples are going to make their way to Jerusalem. He's about to make his grand entrance into the city. Let's pick up the story in Matthew 21, verse 1. As they, Jesus and his disciples, approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. So they're coming up on Jerusalem, and they come to this small village called Bethpage. Here's a view of the Mount of Olives from today. So this is today, standing on the Mount of Olives, and this is a mountain that goes around the city of Jerusalem. And so you see this wall here? For all intents and purposes, this wall represents, inside that wall represents the old city of Jerusalem. Uh, back in 2012, I had the privilege of going there, and uh, I walked around the old city of Jerusalem, not modern Jerusalem. Uh, modern Jerusalem extends out, but the old city of Jerusalem is fairly small. I spent about an hour and a half and probably walked around, I don't know, about a third, maybe almost half of the city. And so it's not that big. And so Jesus and his disciples are sitting up on this mountain, this Mount of Olives. They're overlooking the city, and they're about ready to make their way into this city. Now, Jesus sends a couple of his disciples to get a donkey. What's the point of riding in on a donkey? Well, let's see, Matthew 21, verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. After a victorious battle, traditionally, after a victorious battle, a king would ride his war horse through the city. I want you to picture Alexander the Great or William Wallace from Braveheart riding on the war horse with their sword lifted in their hand, the sense of swagger projecting this image of power and strength and victory. And they would be hailed publicly as a hero by the cheering crowds. Now, what does Jesus do? He rides in gentle and humble on a donkey. A picture of humility and, and gentleness and even weakness. And so the disciples go and they get the donkey. And here's what happens next in verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. What's happening here? Well, a cloak was an outer garment 
that you would wear. It was your main piece of clothing. And in those days, they weren't very wealthy, and so they usually only had one cloak. And so by taking their cloaks off and placing it on the ground, it was a symbolic gesture where they were in essence saying, we are laying down our lives for you. We're giving you our lives. You are our king. We will follow you. We will submit to you. We will serve you. Our lives are yours. Now, what about the palm branches? What about the tree branches? Well, the other gospel accounts tell us that they're palm tree branches, probably date palm tree branches. And the palm branch was a symbol of national uh, victory. It was a symbol of military victory over the enemy. And this dated all the way back to the Maccabean revolt. Um, Here's how one author describes the palm branches. The waving of palm branches, which symbolically convey the notion of victory over one's enemy, probably indicates that the people that were doing this to Jesus mistakenly thought that Jesus would then and there bring national deliverance from Israel's political enemies. And so the crowds of people are placing their cloaks and palm branches down. They're declaring Jesus is king. And Matthew tells us they're shouting something. Look at verse 9. The crowds that went, along, went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Hosanna, they're shouting. Hosanna is a term of praise. It's actually a, a declaration of praise. And at the same time, it's a plea for salvation. They're saying, I beg you to save. Please deliver us. Or as one author simply summarizes it, Hosanna means save now. Save now. The people are crying out to Jesus for salvation and deliverance. They're crying out to Jesus for freedom from oppression. And they're actually quoting Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm, which means it's a psalm that was written hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. And yet it was all about Jesus and the coming Messiah. It describes God's deliverance of his people who cry out for a savior. It's a psalm of praise for the coming Messiah. Let me read you a portion of it in Psalm 118. We'll pick it up at verse 22. The stone the builders rejected, this is Jesus, has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. This is what they're singing to Jesus. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. They're singing this praise, this psalm of praise to King Jesus, who's come to save them. Well, Jesus makes his grand entrance into Jerusalem. Now, how do the thousands of people in the city respond to this parade that has formed? Verse 10. When Jesus entered the Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The whole city is stirred. Everybody, thousands of people, they're all all asking. The buzz is the question on the crowd's minds that day. Who is this? They see the people shouting and worshiping Jesus. They see Jesus. Who is this? Who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's do a little quick recap. So he and his disciples enter Jerusalem. A large crowd forms. They begin hailing Jesus as king, crying out to him for salvation. They place their cloaks and their branches on the ground. They're shouting Hosanna. He's the one who's come to defeat their enemy and bring victory and freedom. Now, here's where Matthew's account of the story takes an interesting turn. Think about this with me. You would imagine that after, a, after the king's grand entrance, that the following scenes of this movie would show the king winning his final battle, 
overthrowing the enemy, and then he would be hailed as the hero of the story, right? That's how movies unfold, but that's not exactly what happens in this story. We don't have time to cover all of the context and all of the content in the next few chapters, but let's briefly summarize what happens between Jesus when he enters on Sunday and Good Friday. For the next few days, Jesus is going to enter the temple courts a few times, and he engages in a battle against the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the chief priests. And first he turns over the tables and the money changers, remember this, in the temple. In his authority, King Jesus is judging them and pronouncing judgment on their leadership at the temple. Then the Pharisees and the chief priests question and challenge Jesus' his authority. In response, Jesus teaches several parables, and each one of the parables Jesus teaches basically pronounces judgment on either their teaching or their lack of integrity. This is where Jesus gives the seven woes. Do you remember this? He calls the Pharisees and the teachers of the law snakes, broods of vipers who will find it difficult to escape hell. You can imagine this doesn't go over very well with them. This incites even more anger and fury in them. Their desire to kill Jesus only deepens, and they start making plans to have him arrested later the week. In chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew, we see Matthew sharing how Jesus describes the events of his second coming. So here he is going to the cross, and he's trying to teach his disciples, listen, there is going to come a day when I do return a second time. And as king, I'm going to set up my throne in Jerusalem and I will reign on earth and every nation will bow and every tongue will confess me as Lord. But that's my second coming. And the disciples have got to be confused about what's happening, what's unfolding before their eyes. We'll fast forward till Friday. Matthew gives his account of the Last Supper, followed by Jesus and his disciples entering the Garden of Gethsemane where they're going to pray for a few hours. And then in the garden is where Jesus is arrested. Notice what happens when Judas and the uh, group comes to arrest him in the garden. While he was still speaking, while Jesus was still speaking to his disciples, Judas, one of the twelve who had left earlier in the night, arrived. And with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Wow, think about this. Matthew says, a large crowd armed with swords and clubs. Just five days earlier, this crowd came to Jesus with their cloaks and their palm branches in hand. And now they come with swords and clubs. It's at this point in the movie when you're thinking, this isn't going to end quite like I thought it was. They drag Jesus off. The religious leaders hold a bogus mock trial accusing Jesus of blasphemy and worthy of death. They get the Roman governor Pilate involved. He tries to help Jesus out. He places before the crowd Jesus and a well-known criminal, a murderer named Barabbas. He offers both of them up. He's expecting the crowd is going to choose to free Jesus, and let, uh, but instead they let Barabbas go free. Pilate asks the crowd, well, what do you want me to do with Jesus? Look at verse 22, Matthew 27, 22. Pilate says, what, what should I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? At this point, Pilate himself is saying, wait a minute, isn't this the guy, the Messiah? Didn't you call him your Messiah? What do you mean to do with him? And listen to, they all answered, crucify him. Crucify him? From Hosanna, crucify him. 
Hosanna to crucify him in just five days. What happened? That's exactly what they do. They crucify Jesus. They hang him on a cross. It was a Roman ex form of execution, right? It was cruel. It was reserved for the most heinous and shameful criminals. And on that cross, while Jesus was hanging on the cross, they placed a sign above his head. Here's what it said. They, above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. The sign is a mock. They're mocking him. This king is hanging on the cross with a crown of thorns. Some king, huh? This is certainly not how anyone expected this story to end if you would have asked him on Monday. This isn't how the crowds expected it to end. This is not how the disciples expected it to end. What happened? How did we get from Hosanna on Sunday to crucify him on Friday? Well, there are a number of reasons why. We don't have time to cover them all, but we're going to zero in on one today. Let's back up in the story when Jesus is about to enter the city. He's on the Mount of Olives. He's looking over Jerusalem. What we left out of the story was a moment where Jesus looks over Jerusalem and weeps. Matthew records this moment, but Luke's account gives us a few more details. So let's look at Luke's account. It says that as he, as Jesus, approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. Jesus sees the city and the people of Jerusalem and he weeps for them. And it's more than just his eyes filled with tears. One author writes, it's more accurate to say that Jesus burst into tears. Picture this. This is the king who has burst into tears and is weeping. What kind of king does that? Let's remember why the king stepped down from his throne in heaven and came to earth in the first place. The king came to save and rescue his people. The king came to bring them the peace they longed for, to reconcile them to himself. And so here he is at the end of his life and his ministry, and the king of the universe, the son of, the God, a son of God, being fully human, also being fully human, looks over the city and is filled, filled with grief. Because the weight of their rejection hits him. Their spiritual blindness breaks his heart. Why the spiritual blindness, though? Jesus said, if only you had known what would bring you peace. If only you knew what would really save you and really bring you true freedom. See, their mistake was they mistakenly thought a military or political victory would bring them the peace and freedom they were looking for. And so that's why they had these preconceived expectations that that's the kind of king messiah that they were looking for. That's what the kind of king and Messiah they needed. One with power and strength who would defeat their enemy, the Romans. But their path to peace and salvation was never going to come through gaining political power. They failed to see that the Romans were not their true enemy. Their real enemy was the sin within them. And specifically, the sin of idolatry. Idolatry is the chief sin of man. If you're taking notes, you might want to write that down. We don't talk about this often enough. In the Ten Commandments, idolatry is the focus of the first two commandments. The first command, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second command is, you shall not make for yourself an idol. 
In his book, Counterfeit Gods, pastor and author Tim Keller defines idolatry like this. A counterfeit God is anything so central and so essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol is whatever you look at, whatever you look to and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. That is what's going to bring me peace and joy and satisfaction. In his book, Keller lists several of the most common idols that we worship and that we serve. One of them is power or influence. The Jewish leaders had made an idol out of political or governmental power. They mistakenly believed that they needed a king who would defeat the Romans to put them in power. Over the last year, here in America, and quite candidly, here in our own church, many Christians have made the same mistake. Here's what Keller writes about the idolatry of political power. It is people's tendency to turn good political causes, good political causes, into counterfeit gods. We can look upon our our political leaders as messiahs, our political policies as saving doctrine, and turn our political activities into a kind of religion. Keller says, people who struggle with political idolatry mistakenly believe that if their policies and leaders are not in power, the whole world's going to fall apart. I'm not suggesting any of us have that problem. I'm not suggesting any of us have struggled with that in the past year. I'm just saying that was their sin. That's not ours, right? This is not a sin that we need to repent of by any means. Excuse the sarcasm. Listen, idolatry is so dangerous because counterfeit gods blind you from seeing the one true God. Jesus was and is the one true victorious king. And he was a humble servant king who laid aside his power and his authority and decided to lay down his life for his people. Jesus could have used his authority and power to rightly judge the religious rulers, the the crowds of people, the disciples. He could have judged them for their sin, but instead of judging them, he's judged on their behalf. Instead of condemning them to death, he allows himself to be condemned to death for them. Here's how 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21 says that God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want you to know this, this, this phrase, be sin for us. Does that mean that Jesus became sinful? No. Jesus was fully God and he was without sin and he lived a sinless life. So how does he be sin for us? He gets treated the way sinful people deserve to be treated. He gets treated the way you and I deserve to be treated. He steps into our place and he absorbs all the consequences of our sin for us. What are those consequences? Well, first and foremost, he saves us from the eternal consequences of our sin, which is the judgment of a guilty verdict before God. And that punishment comes with that verdict. The the punishment that comes with that verdict is eternal separation from God in a place that Jesus described as hell. And so 
the moment that we believe in our hearts that 2,000 years ago on Easter Sunday that God raised Jesus, the Son of God, from the dead, and when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we are saved from those eternal consequences. And that's good news. And he does that so that we might become the righteousness of God. He takes our sin and he gives us all of his righteousness. That's a pretty good deal. I don't know about you. This is good news, that we can all be saved from sin and death. How? It is by grace through faith in Jesus. Ephesians 2.8 says it this way, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Salvation isn't something we earn. Salvation is something that Jesus earned on our behalf. Sometimes you hear Christians say that salvation is a free gift. That's not really true. Salvation was really costly for Jesus. It cost him his life. Our salvation cost the king his life. And on the cross, King Jesus defeated our greatest enemy, sin and death. And Jesus is the victorious king, and he won the decisive battle, and he brings true freedom to his people. And we get to share in his victory, and we get to shout today, Hosanna, Hosanna. But there's more good news. King Jesus can also save us from the daily consequences of our sin as well. Here's where Palm Sunday can influence us every day of the year. Here's what I mean. For the Christ follower... At the moment of our salvation, we're given and filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Spirit of God miraculously comes in and dwells within us. But we still have our sinful, fallen flesh. So now we have two natures, the Bible tells us. We have the old nature, our sinful flesh, and the new nature, the Spirit of Christ. And the great challenge of the Christian life, can I get an amen, is learning how to take off the old and put on the new. Every day we struggle with our weaknesses and our sins. Every day we're faced with our failures. We still selfishly put our needs ahead of others. We are impatient and unkind. We get easily angered. We have ungrateful attitudes. We're unforgiving. We put others down. We promote ourselves and defend ourselves. We are prideful. We lack compassion. Every day we have to deal with the reality of our sin. And I don't know about you, but can it be exhausting? It's exhausting. And sin can leave us feeling frustrated and defeated. Sin can leave you feeling like a horrible person. And the Apostle Paul does such a good job of describing this in Romans chapter 7. Do you remember this? This is where Paul says, the very things I want to do, I don't do. And the very things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. He says, I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out because I have the sin still living in me. And then Paul says this. Paul says his greatest enemy is the sin within him. He says, sin is waging war within me. Listen to how he describes himself. Romans 7, 24. What a wretched man I am, he says. You ever find yourself thinking about, thinking like that? The next time you find yourself thinking, what a wretched man I am. Ask this Palm Sunday kind of question. Who will rescue me? Who will save me? Who will hosanna me from this body that is subject to death? Paul knows he has ultimate 
eternal salvation in Christ. Paul's asking, who's going to save me today? Who's going to save me from the consequences of my sin today? Verse 25, thanks be to God. It's who delivers me, who hosannas me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, you may be wondering, if we still struggle with sin and weakness and failure every day, what exactly is Paul saying we get delivered from? Like, I get it that when we die, we go to heaven, we, we, get, we get freed from those eternal consequences, but what do we get delivered from today? Well, he tells us in the next verse, Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. One of the daily consequences of our sin that we have to deal with on a daily basis is condemnation. Whenever we're faced with our sin or our weaknesses or our failures, we condemn ourselves. We judge ourselves. We criticize ourselves. And because we have this continual waterfall of weaknesses hitting us every day, we carry around this sense of shame and condemnation, this underlying current of condemnation. Here's some signs that you're carrying this around. When you mess up at anything, you end up grumpy in a bad mood. When you make a mistake, you get angry and frustrated, impatient, short-tempered. When you hurt someone and you're confronted with it, you get defensive. When an area of weakness, something you're not good at, makes you feel helpless, makes you feel overwhelmed, small, vulnerable, you end up getting down and depressed, discouraged. When you fail at something and you hide it or you do it in secret or you withdraw from people for a few days because you don't want anybody to know that you've done it, these are all signs that you're living with shame and condemnation of your sins over your weaknesses and failures. But we don't have to live like this. Jesus was condemned so that you and I can live free of condemnation. Paul says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because look at the next verse, Romans 8, verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who dwells in us gives life and has set you free from the law of sin and death, free from the consequences of sin and death. So how do we experience this freedom on a daily basis? By shouting Hosanna. I, I created a simple diagram to help you see how this works, okay? So typically, we sin, or we have a weakness, or uh, we are faced with a weakness, or we fail, we mess up, right? What happens is we end up judging ourselves and condemning ourselves. And that, le or that you judge ourselves because we know what sin is. We know what mistakes are. And if we don't see our mistakes and our sins and our failures, guess what? Our spouse will tell us, our kids will tell us, the world around us will tell us. We're constantly faced with it. And, and so we we feel this sense of judgment. And then that leads to a spirit of condemnation. And we carry around this low-grade condemnation, and it's a burden to us. Listen, so many of us are walking around on a daily basis with this low-grade undercurrent of discouragement in our life, and we don't know why. As Christians, we know that Jesus died on the cross before us. We know he gave us the victory, but we can't seem to access that victory on a daily basis when we're faced with the daily consequences of our sin. So here's what I want you to do. The next time you feel the weight of your sin coming to bear upon you, run to the cross. 
See, Jesus on the cross absorbs all of our shame and all of our condemnation. He took it all. On the cross, he had the sign above his head that basically meant shameful failure. He took that reputation for us. And some of you need to hear today, I needed to hear this week, Jesus say to you, let me take that from you. And let me offer you my righteousness or let me offer you grace. It's okay. And when we grasp this, what's it lead to? Paul says, thanks be to God. All of a sudden, our weaknesses don't define our worth. Our weaknesses lead to worship. This is what Paul said. Paul says, I delight in my weaknesses. I boast in my weaknesses so that Christ's power can rest on me. We, our sin is like a black velvet of our lives. And Jesus is the gold, the, the beautiful diamond that rests on the black velvet of our lives. Jesus on the cross is the beautiful, beautiful love of God. And then all of our sin and all of our weaknesses, what does it do? It just shows how awesome Jesus is and what he's done for us. So try this. The next time you see or you experience your sin and your weakness and you're tempted to feel condemned, you're tempted to condemn yourself and judge yourself and criticize yourself, you're tempted to go down that path of shame and condemnation, Try this, shout Hosanna. Stop in those moments, look to King Jesus on the cross and pray to the victorious King, say Hosanna. Praying Hosanna to Jesus in the face of our weakness, in the face of our sin is one way we allow him to be King of our lives every day. So let's practice this. We're gonna end very simply today with a little Hosanna prayer time. I'm going to guide you through a simple two-minute prayer. If you will, I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads. And I'm going to give you just a few prayer prompts. Take a deep breath. Set your mind on Jesus. And I want you to think about this. What sin or weakness is producing some condemnation some condemnation and some shame in your life today? What sin or weakness or failure causes you to think what a wretched person I am? What sin is weighing you down and defeating you? You have one? I've got many. <laughs> Pick one. Now take a few seconds and simply first and foremost confess that sin to the Lord. Just acknowledge it and to agree before Jesus, with Jesus, that th yes, Jesus, this is sin. Now take a minute and thank Jesus. Give him thanks for saving you from the eternal consequences of your sin. Give the king praise. Shout to the king right now, very simply in prayer, Hosanna. Thank you, King Jesus, for laying down your life for me. Now ask him to save you from the daily consequences of your sin. Ask Jesus to 
free you and to help you be free from the feelings of condemnation and shame in your life. Ask him, say, King Jesus, will you give me victory over this? Help me shout Hosanna in those moments when I'm tempted to feel condemned. Maybe you're sitting here this morning or maybe you're watching online and you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. But maybe for the first time, you're ready to do so. If you've never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, if you've never repented of the idolatry in your life, if you see today, maybe for the first time in your life, that your greatest enemy is the sin within you, if you're asking yourself, who's going to rescue me? Who's going to save me? Let me encourage you to look to King Jesus right now, today, and in prayer, simply cry out, Hosanna, save me, Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for loving us. I think about Romans 5, 8. God, you demonstrated your love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I thank you so much, Jesus, that on the cross, you took all of the shame and the condemnation and the consequences of our sin. You took it. You absorbed it all on our behalf. You were condemned so we didn't have to be condemned. Thank you, Jesus. And thank you for giving us your righteousness, for giving us grace, God. Father, would you help us to access your victory on a daily basis? Help us to be free from shame and condemnation because of King Jesus. You're awesome, Jesus. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.